This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Louis Mail Madrona. Louis is certified in family practice, geriatrics, and psychiatry, and has worked for years in rural emergency medicine. He's the author of several books on what Native culture can offer the modern world, including narrative medicine and coyote healing. Lewis has worked in collaboration with Sounds True to create the audio learning series, The Spirit of Healing, and also a new program on Native American healing meditations. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Lewis and I spoke about what Native wisdom can offer modern medicine. We also talked about the value of relational, storied, and ceremonial culture and the role of spirit beings in the healing process. Here's my conversation with Louis Malmadrona. Louis, you have a very impressive set of credentials, an MD from Stanford. You're a board-certified family physician, a psychiatrist, a geriatrician, and you also hold a PhD in clinical psychology. So first of all, you've dedicated quite a bit of your life to formal academic training in medicine, and at the same time, you have roots in the world of indigenous healing and have created a program with Sounds True called The Spirit of Healing. And I'm curious, when you put all of this together, your academic training and your respect for the indigenous healing traditions, what comes out of all of those inputs in terms of how you view healing today? I know that's a big, broad question, but how do you view healing? Well, I I think probably one of the most important things that I've learned is that um, modern medicine needs indigenous ideas in order to be healing. Without those ideas, we can fix a few things. We can, you know, we're pretty good at trauma and putting people back together who get broken. But when it comes to making people whole again, we're not we're not really good at that. We're not really very good at chronic disease. We're not good at end-of-life care. We're not good at uh, mental health. And we need to recover a storied culture. We need the input of a, of cultures of story and cultures of relationship and cultures of meaning in order to really help people. And so, so I think my sense is that medicine took a wrong turn with the Flexner Report in 1905 in this drive to be purely technical and to turn its back on the humanities and on relationships and 
luckily, indigenous cultures have preserved that. They've, well, we've we've probably tried to beat it out of them, but luckily, cultures exist that still focus on story and relationship and ceremony and interconnectedness. And so now in medicine, we can look to those cultures and say, hey, we need we need you guys. We need to get this back. The stuff that we've lost that we thought was unimportant that turns out to mean everything. So come help us out. Now, I think I have a sense of what you might mean by a relational culture, but I, I'm not sure what you mean by a storied culture. What, what is it that we're missing that... Native American cultures and other indigenous cultures could help us with in terms of being a storied culture? In in most indigenous cultures, there's a recognition that um, all human knowledge is in the form of a story. And there's actually some neuroscientists at Northwestern and Yale that write the same thing, that that Abelson and Shank are their names. And the idea is that anything that's important gets stored in the brain as a story. And indigenous cultures have mostly known this for thousands of years. And Western cultures have forgotten it and and are just rediscovering the power of story. And so by a storied culture, I mean a culture... That, that listens to people in a mindful way telling what happened to them and telling their story about their lives. And by an unstoried culture, I mean uh, something like what psychiatrists do with the DSM manual, which is to ask a series of checklist questions. So I'll say... Are you sad more often than not? How's your concentration? How's your energy level? How's your appetite? How's your sleep? Uh, how's your libido? And and I'm making checks in boxes. And if you get six out of eight, then I call you major depressive disorder. That, that's a non-storied approach. And so in a storied approach, I say, so um, tell me about the last time you felt happy. And tell me what happened to make you so sad. So um, I'm saying that we really need to recover that respect for the stories people have for how they got sick and how they think they can get well and what the illness or health means in their lives. Well, people are, are writing about these things now in, in greater in greater detail, like Arthur Kleinman, who's a Harvard anthropologist, and, and and talking about how badly medicine needs these things. As a healer, when you listen to someone's story, you ask them certain questions. I'm curious, first of all, which questions you find are the most productive? Let's say if somebody comes to you with some kind of life-threatening illness, they want to work with you, which which questions bring out the stories? And then when you're listening, what are you listening for as you listen to the story? I think probably the first question I usually ask is, how do you think that you came to be the way that you are? How, how do you think that 
you became ill? What do you think happened? What do you think went into creating this? And in a sense, that means um, every illness has a creation story. Well, every probably everything in the world has a creation story. But but it's so important to know why people think they're sick. Because because if we don't, if what I propose to do doesn't make sense within the story of why they think they're sick, they're not going to do it. Or they're not going to do it with enthusiasm. And when we doctors forget to ask people that, you know, we we lose cooperation. So the first thing I need to know is, is why do you think you're sick? And I remember recently um, a woman with cancer saying, um, I've got cancer because all the men in my life betrayed me. And I thought, wow, I didn't, I didn't know that was a cause of cancer. You know, um, and, and I said to myself, I know people who've been terribly betrayed by men who don't have cancer. You know, so this is her story. You know, this is not necessarily anyone else's story. And, and so I said, really? You know, how, how does that work? And so she told me a story about how with each betrayal, her immune system had gotten more and more worn down until finally uh, cancer emerged. And this was a, a personal story that she'd put together from her own readings about immunity and cancer and psychoneuroimmunology. And it didn't necessarily serve her to heal because we couldn't really reverse the betrayals. And so the so, you know, um, so my next question was, so how do you think that you could get better? And she said, I would have to find true love. And she said, plus I have to avoid all bad chemicals and toxins in the environment and eat completely healthy, organic, natural, raw food and stay away from drugs and chemicals. And so now the story is getting even more complicated. One, because one might not be able to find true love within the time frame needed for her to recover. And second, I, I don't really like the true love story anyway. I think probably uh, good enough love is a better story since since few of us are perfect and, and rarely do we find the perfect mate. I'd settle for... I'd, definitely settle for a good enough mate, you know. And and it turned out as we listened to the story further, um, our life was, it was really miserable because she had invented all these rules about how to get well. And any chemical exposure would make her more sick. And of course, you can't, she lived in New York City and you can't actually walk around New York City without some chemical exposure. And um, any food that wasn't raw and clean and organic would, would make her sick, and that's hard to do. And and so the, the poor woman was tortured. And so, you know, my first intervention as a, quote, healer was to say, you know, maybe it's not this hard. Would it, or Or... Another way of thinking about it, 
what if it, what if you're wrong? What if there's a certain random element to getting cancer or getting well? Or what if what if it how you get cancer doesn't matter for how you get well? What if getting well is out of our hands and and we just have to um, in a sense apply to the spirits and and sometimes we get it and sometimes we don't and and you know winning the olympics isn't actually necessary you know and that was a really difficult dialogue i mean as a result of our interaction she allowed herself to eat one yummy delicious chocolate chip cookie from her favorite bakery somewhere in midtown manhattan and it was the greatest pleasure she'd had in months and i i somehow thought that was a success of sorts but but hopefully that gives you a sense of of the importance of of getting people's stories about why they think they're sick and what what will make them better it, it seems to me that a, an important aspect is how you're listening to the story and how you're helping the person potentially reframe it or see it differently. Meaning, you know, a lot of times people report, I've been in therapy for gosh knows how many years and I'm so sick of my story. I just keep saying the same story. I don't seem to be changing. I mean, something has to happen in the interaction with the healer that generates some kind of new perspective. Would you say that's true? Absolutely. That that together we co-author a new story. And another way of saying it is that we make new meaning together. And I, I think a therapy in which the therapist lets someone repeat the same story for years is a bad therapy. That I know when I hear, when I hear someone, there are people who are stuck in telling a story about how victimized they are and how terrible life has been for them and how nothing can get better and and therefore that's what happens and so as as a person who's listening i don't ask the question what's true i ask the question now how does this work in this person's life what's what's the effect of living this story and if it's clear to me that the effect is to make you miserable or to keep things the same, then I need to point that out in some way. I need to say, gee, it, it seems like the more you, you know, you're like a car tire in the snow that's spinning, spinning, spinning and going nowhere. You know, maybe we need to put a piece of wood underneath you so that you can actually get out of the rut. Or maybe we need to pour some sand, you know, onto this snow. Um, and something has to change. You know, really that was my response to the woman I was telling you about, was that when I listened to her story, it was clear that the way that it manifested in her life, the way that she was living, was miserable. And I... I think all stories are true for the people that tell them where they tell them, but some stories work better than others. And and her story wasn't working really well for someone who was living in midtown Manhattan. I mean, 
maybe it could have worked in Fiji or um, Tonga, where there's maybe fewer chemicals, so who knows? Chemicals are everywhere, and more raw food. But but it, it wasn't life-promoting yeah. in Manhattan. Yeah. Now, now, Lewis, you mentioned that what indigenous cultures can give to Western medicine, at least part of what they can give, is this relational focus, a storied culture, and a ceremonial culture. And I know you work with ceremony and healing. And I'm wondering if you can speak some to that. What kind of ceremonies help people in the healing process? I think that ceremony is a way for us to engage the supernatural world, the spiritual world, in dialogue. And we need, in a sense, to open a portal to that world in order to communicate with it. And and ceremony allows us to do that. In in ceremony, we create the space for spirit beings to come into the ordinary world and interact with us. And for us, in, in a very limited sense, to step out of the ordinary world into the spirit world to interact with them. And um, through that, um, change can happen in our lives. You know, change can happen in the physical world. And I, I, I've, been, I've been trying to understand, you know, one of the um, questions that, that we talked about earlier was, uh, where am I on the edge of my studies of healing? And, and my edge is reading Harry Stapp, who's a physicist who writes in the Journal of Consciousness Studies about how this, how this comes about, that it's kind of a, a quantum measurement effect where we focus and direct our attention on a possible outcome in such a way that it becomes real. And, and the math is, is heady. It's difficult reading, but that's really my edge. And but I think whether or not one can understand it in an intellectual way, that cultures have known for centuries that that ceremony is a way to get the spiritual forces working on our behalf. Now I'm not sure I completely followed you, Lewis, when you're talking about kind of quantum realities and how that might relate to ceremony and spirit beings. Well, there's there's something called the quantum Zeno effect. It was discovered in Austin, Texas in 1977, and it's being used a lot by um, people in consciousness studies to explain how mind, which is non-physical, changes brain, which is physical. And so the idea of the quantum Zeno effect is that if you observe something frequently enough, you prevent it from changing, that you keep it locked in the same state. And statistically, things should change all the time. But if you make frequent enough measurements of a system that should be changing, it won't change. And so um, people who are writing about consciousness are talking about um, how when we focus our minds and our attention on a particular possibility or state of being, that that we fix it in place. 
and and it, it's it's really an intriguing idea that that actually um, Buddha already thought of a long time ago, which is that where your attention goes is where you go. That that um, that where we focus our attention is everything about where we take ourselves in our lives, and so um, the idea of ceremony is that we're as a group coherently focusing our attention on um, praying, on asking, on requesting a certain positive outcome in a humble way of saying, if it's not too much trouble and if it's possible, would you spirits please uh, help us out in this way? For instance, um, you know, our friend Michael has Parkinson's disease and he's shaking and it's hard for him to walk and 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 would it be okay would it be if you could to make it a little easier for him to walk and so we're all focusing on that possibility you know that um Michael could walk a little easier and if our minds are focused on it and the spirit's minds are focused on it then maybe it gets locked into place in in this particular physical coordinate system that we live in so that's the quantum tie in is the way that you know in the in the quantum world everything exists all at once simultaneously and when we query it something gets locked into place and in the physical world, in our world, and so that we see one outcome from all those many, many possible outcomes. So I think that ceremony is a little bit like querying the the quantum spiritual world in such a way that we can lock a particular outcome into place in the physical world, which is the outcome that the person improves or, or they're healthier. Or, or life is happier, or whatever it is that we're asking for. I'm curious, if someone's listening and they have a health challenge in their life, is there a ceremony you could recommend? I mean, I know it's a little bit generic. You don't really know what's going on with the person, but are there some basic principles of ceremony that anyone could use? Well, yes. And one really simple idea that I think is relatively easy to use is to take, uh, whenever you look at the clock, to take one or two minutes and to imagine being well and to just to just playfully, lovingly, laughingly, compassionately toward yourself. Imagine being as healthy as you want to be. Not in a demanding way, you know, but in a, in a just playful way. Wouldn't it be lovely to be well? And, and to just imagine it as if it's true in this moment right now. And then after a minute or two, just let it go, walk away. And in that way, I think we begin to move forward, potentially. And, and, and I say playfully because, you know, we little people never know if we can get well or not. It's It's really, you know 
out of our hands. It's it's it the answers to those questions are are at much different levels of existence than we can access. But well, we can um, put it put out the intention that we sure would like to be well, and and that's a really simple ceremony that people can do, you know, right away, right now, and and it reduces anxiety because a lot of the time when people are sick, they're worrying about what if I get sicker, what if I die, what if I don't get well, and it and it's a wonderful antidote to just take a minute or two periodically throughout the day to visualize wellness. And, and you know, athletes do the same thing to visualize a superb performance. And, and it's been shown to be very effective, this particular technique slash ceremony for athletes. And so why not for sick people? I think the other part of that is that we can all do something to focus our attention on feeling peaceful and feeling uh, connected with nature and with everyone else, you know, feeling whole, feeling in balance. And that's got to make a difference. And people do it in all kinds of different ways. You know, for me, I would, if I could, I would burn a little sage, you know, because the the smell uh, reminds me to let go of the things that I don't need to hold on to. And when I'm in places where you can't burn, I, I, t- I like to bring a little sage spray, a spray bottle of sage oil, you know, and I can spray it in the air and I can smell that same aroma. And 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 that just reminds me to to let go of the burdens and the worries and the things that I don't need that I'm carrying and to focus on what it is that I'd rather be thinking about, you know, feeling connected to the tree outside the window, feeling at one with the birds that are flying in the sky, feeling a part, like I'm a part of nature. And and nature is an amazing healer. If you've ever watched nature heal a forest after a fire, it's very fast. It happens really quickly. I mean, so much quicker than one could imagine. And, And I've seen nature take over a strip mine and completely cover it in an amazingly small amount of time. So if I focus on nature as the healer um, just a little bit, then that's got to be good for me. Now, now, Lewis, as part of the idea of ceremony, you mentioned that we're opening up a communication with spirit beings. And, and I'm curious, here you have your you know, MD from Stanford, etc., uh, how you view spirit beings. Have you had personal experiences that confirm for you, yes, these are spirit beings, they're talking to me? You know, I have, and um, I think that it's not necessary to be a materialist, to be a scientist. And I know many scientists who are deeply spiritual and believe in a spirit world and 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 have encountered angels and and um in the vision quest for instance which I try to do every year um we see spirits and i've seen spirits 
and I grew up in with grandparents who saw spirits, and it just seemed like an ordinary thing to me. Um, it didn't seem special. It wasn't actually until I got to Stanford Medical School that I found out that officially spirits don't exist. As, as far as I knew un, until then, everyone thought spirits were real. They, you know, I had Christian friends, I had Buddhist friends, I had um, Jewish friends. Everyone thought that the supernatural world was real. And I remember one of the most deeply spiritual teachers that I had in college was Sir John Eccles, who got the Nobel Prize for discovering neurotransmitters. And and he led a seminar that I took as an undergraduate on the neurophysiology of the soul and how our physical bodies connect with our spiritual bodies and then connect with the spirit world. And, um, you know, I got three credits for that at Indiana University. So Now, could you tell me a little bit about what experiences you've had, share one or two from Vision Quest experiences. And then, and I'd be also curious to know, in addition to your personal experiences, what you see as the role spirit beings might play in healing. And maybe if you have an example of that. Yeah. Let me say that, that some of the most powerful spirit sightings that I've had are available to pretty much anyone without even going on a vision quest. And they've been in Hispanic wooden churches at Christmas Eve. There's something about, and in Arizona and Mexico and New Mexico, there's something about the Hispanic Catholic culture in the American Southwest that's deeply and amazingly spiritual. And and I've, I remember one midnight mass outside of Tucson in a little Catholic church in which I was just overwhelmed with the visitation of an angel. And I know that everyone there pulled this being in. And it was just so wonderful because I realized that we can only hold that field for a very short time or our nervous systems would burn out you know and and I and it was it was just a marvelous sense you know I I saw and felt this amazing winged being who just broadcast pure love and compassion that everything we did for this being even what things that we would consider bad things were loving were loved were appreciated and it was one of the most profound, transformative experiences for me because um, I was trying to come to terms with with somewhat of a negative Christian upbringing. I mean, from my my German stepfather, you know, who hated my Cherokee grandparents, and I, it was this awareness that it's all one, that that there's no that in spirit world there's no religious wars. Nobody's fighting. It's all, all roads lead to the same joy and compassion. And and how does that translate into, well, my work? Um, when I'm working conventionally, and I do, you know, I see people in a medical setting who have 
congestive heart failure and hypertension. I see people, you know, in medical settings who um, have bipolar disorder and want medication. And I think that um, one of the things that I can do in that setting is to hold the space for my soul and their soul to connect and for the the spirits who um, hang out with me or around me from time to time to be present and connect with their spirits so that healing happens on many layers. And even if we don't talk about it, I can try and hold a mindful, spiritual space for that medical encounter. And and I can I can do everything I can to feel love and compassion for that person and their suffering. And and I can uh give them a smile, uh, you know, give them a loving touch while I'm listening to their heart with the stethoscope. I can take their blood pressure with um joy. There's little things that I can do as a spiritual person that enlightens, in a sense, you know, makes that medical encounter better. And outside of my, you know, conventional medicine world, I mean, sometimes people come to me for doctoring. And in those, doctoring in the sense of energy medicine or, uh, you know, spiritually oriented healing, and in those contexts, you know, my feeling is that it's the spirits that are working through me, that there are these spirits that I've met in vision quests and, you know, other ceremonies who, you know, when I pray and I ask spirits to come and help me, that they come and they help these people. And I don't I don't feel like I do very much. You know, I just um, cultivate these relationships with spiritual beings who come and, and work on people who need work and, and do what they can, because they can't always make people better either. Um, but but they have uh, greater powers than I do. And so, you know, in, 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 in that sort of um, energy medicine doctoring kind of activity, you know, we're calling on beings with greater powers than we have to come help us. And, and, you know, it, I think it makes a difference. Um, you know, some of my colleagues think this is all a metaphor, and, and I say, well, that's fine, because you can get a lot of places with metaphor. I think believing it makes it more powerful, but I also know that metaphor is really powerful, too. That it's, you know, as, as a word in Greek, it means basically a, a cart to carry something from one place to another. And if, if you were ever in the Athens airport, those trolleys that you put your luggage on, they're called metaphora. And that that was what really struck me about that word, that it's just something that we use to carry our baggage from, you know, one place to another. And so so, you know, for people who see all this as metaphorical, well, that's fine. It can still help them. Um, but I think faith probably ramps it up a notch. When you're doing energy medicine, doctoring, as you say, 
and you have this sense that spirit beings are working through you, what is happening such that you feel that it's a being that's separate from you that's sort of working through your body versus uh, just sort of higher aspect of your own energetic capacities to have healing energy flow through? I think that either one is a good story about what's going on. And and probably the story that I pick is, is cultural. You know, it's the one I grew up in. And I could see that someone else who grew up in a different world view would pick that other story and they make equal sense within the context that they're being told. And I don't have anything... I don't have any way to say that the way that I see it is is right and that other way is not right. I think they both sound great. And th- and maybe they're both true. You know, explanatory pluralism is the idea that that things can be true on many levels and the the levels don't have to be readily translatable into each other. And so, yeah, maybe that's true. I mean, it's, it's, I'm primed by the culture in which I grew up to see things in a certain way. And so in, in the way that I was raised, um, when, you know, I can feel, I feel something that I recognize is not ordinary me. And it seems to have its own ontological status, you know, and, and sometimes it announces itself and says, hey, you know, I'm this dude over here from the 19th century and I'm happy to come help you. And and I think, cool, yeah, go for it. Uh, really happy you dropped in. And go to work, you know, take care of things. Someone else, you know, could have the same perceptual phenomenological experience and see it as their higher self or their... Um, soul or their angelic connection or I can think of you know many labels that one could use or um, you know and and whatever works seems good to me Um, you know I'm staying at a Carmelite retreat center in Australia as we talk and um, you know Holy Ghost sounds really good right here. And um, Virgin Mary trumps everything here. And who couldn't love the Virgin Mary? <laughs> What's there not to love about Virgin Mary? Oh, I love this. I love this phrase, explanatory. Explanatory pluralism. It means it could be a new tagline for Sounds True. Hey, there you go. I can't remember who coined it, but some postmodernist, you know, made it up. And and it it sort of works that that there's so many layers, and they don't translate, you know, readily, but they can all be true. Now I'm curious, Lewis. Someone comes to you, and they're suffering from some kind of diagnosis, and they're terribly concerned about it. Some kind of life-threatening illness. They're they're suffering from some kind of life-threatening illness. Do you have any sense, even just in your first meeting with people, which people you think will really get better physically 
and which people won't. Uh, you know, I mean, meaning, are there certain qualities that you sense in someone, and you think, okay, this person, they've they've kind of they've got what it takes for the healing process to happen. This other person, I don't know, is not looking so great. I can, I can sense qualities that are associated with not healing. I can't sense who will heal. I can I have some sense for who might not heal. Um, and I, because I think healing is, is what, what's called an emergent property, that it, that it comes out of, out of the relationships that we all form together with each other and with the spirits that are involved and with nature. And that, um, that we can't actually produce it on command or control it. But what I can, what I can say, I think, definitely doesn't work is, is when somebody is really rigidly focused on there's only one way to get well, and by God, that's what I'm going to do. Because I think we're called to be flexible, and I think we're called to humility, and I think we're called to acknowledge that we might not get well, even though we want to. We're, we're called to acknowledge our smallness in the nature of the universe. And there's a Lakota concept that I love, which is the concept that we're uh, thrown into a world of, of forces that are so much more powerful than us, that buffet us around and toss us around and, and you know, almost literally play soccer with us as the ball. And that, um, and that the first step is to recognize our pitiful nature and our insignificance and smallness and then to stand up and to ask for help and to proceed to make meaning and purpose anyway. You know, which is really um, transformative and powerful, a concept. And so I think um, sort of hubris is probably not a good idea if you're really sick and you want to get well, or or the sense that you know how to do it, or that you can do it without help, or that anyone knows how to do it, for that matter. So I, I worry when I meet someone who's really rigid and and inflexible and and insistent that they know the only way to get well, and um, or people that that come in with this sort of notion, you know, that, that I've heard um, bandied about in some popular cultural arenas that people come in and they say, well, I made myself sick, now I'm going to make myself well. And and that seems to me um, so oversimplistic as to be dangerous to think, you know, that, that there's so many forces that play into our health and disease and and if we're healthy, we should just be so grateful for that health. And if we're sick, you know, we should realize that it's not, you know, we don't have the power necessarily to make us ourselves sick, that it's so much bigger than us. And and the help that we need is so much bigger than us. And it involves other people and, and spiritual realms. And, and that we, we just have to humbly request it in a good way in a way of, of supplication and 
and and um, humility and and faith and devotion and and hope for the best, you know. And in the end, we get what we get. And I can't predict. I remember I had a, a colleague, a neurosurgeon in Tucson, who had um, he had a formula for predicting, you know, how patients who came to see him for neurosurgical problems um, would do. He said, in the first appointment, the more people they bring with them and the more hugs I get, the better they're going to do. And and I thought that was a pretty good formula. <laughs> I like that. He called it Hamilton's Rule. Now, now you mentioned the word faith, and, and I'm curious, what's your faith as a practitioner? your faith in the healing process? Well, I have faith that all of these things, healing, caring, happen at at higher levels. I'm going to say higher. I'm not sure that that's the best metaphor. But they they happen at, at more profoundly complex and rich spiritual levels than we operate at. And it's my faith that that there are these spiritual beings who love us and care for us, you know, and like like peop you know, and they want the best for us and if they can work it out they will. And so, you know, my sense is that that there are also um purposes and meanings that we can't fathom. You know, that may help explain why some people get sick or why, you know, children come into the world and die. Um, And that it's so much more complicated than we could ever imagine. And my my faith sort of works into this by my saying, um, in the end, we just have to trust in in the, the, the powers of the universe, the forces of nature. And it, you know, it's it's something that Soren Kierkegaard wrote about, and and I I love his writings because he's the guy that coined the term leap of faith, and he said, in the end, you know, there's there's nothing more that I can do to prove this, so therefore, I just have to take the leap of faith and believe in the things that are invisible that I can't prove to anyone else because they seem real to me. And so, so you know, that's where my faith plays in, is that I, I believe in these forces and powers, and, and I also know that I don't command them, and I don't control them, and I'm not smart enough to know what the right answer is. And so, you know, that's why we pray for the highest good, instead of, you know, being specific and telling them what to do. You know, um, and I I just think that the more time we spend cultivating our relationships with these higher powers, and um, you know, the happier we'll be. It's interesting because the Carmelite nuns apparently agree with me. Meaning, are you getting nods and signs of approval from the group that you're with? Right, right, right. That, yeah, they have the same idea that that one of the purposes of our life is to cultivate in the same way as 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 you would cultivate a garden, 
to cultivate our relationships with the spiritual world. You know, to spend the time that you would spend in a garden. You know, that, that in a sense, your spiritual life is like a garden. And you have to put in the time to have a really good garden. I'm wondering here at the end of our conversation, Lewis, if you'd be willing, as a gift for our listeners, to take us through a short meditation, a short prayer, where we're actually able to cultivate that garden together and invoke healing, whatever our situation might be. Sure, of course. So what I'd, what I'd like to invite people to do, and I learned from the last time that I was in Colorado with Sounds True to talk to you, the individual, because each of us are individuals listening. So I'd like to invite you to take a moment and to close your eyes and to to just appreciate how joyful it is to breathe. What a wonderful thing it is to take a breath. And and some some of you have had asthma or have had colds or bronchitis and you know how that feels and and, and it's so wonderful when we can Stop thinking about breathing. It's so wonderful to just be able to breathe without thinking about it. And that's why it's so marvelous to just step back and say, wow, isn't it just amazing that I'm breathing today? It's just so wonderful to be able to breathe, to breathe in this wonderful fresh air, to breathe in all of the fragrances of nature, and, and I'm in a beautiful garden spot in Australia in the summer, and I'd just like to invite you to imagine the smells, the tea tree, the flowers, to hear the sound of the birds, the kookaburra bird singing overhead, and, and, and to, to take just a moment, wherever you are, and to recognize that you're surrounded by nature. Even in the heart of New York City, nature surrounds you, that the buildings rest upon grass and rock and dirt, and birds are everywhere, squirrels are in the trees. Wherever we go, we are a part of nature because we're physical. Nature is us. We are nature. And it's 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 marvelous to just take a moment and to feel connected to the earth, to put one's feet on the ground, on the floor, and to just know that underneath us is a whole planet, and it's really large. And, and you can feel the love of, of Mother Earth. It's called gravity. It's what she uses to pull us to her bosom. And... And so we always know her love because we're always working with gravity. And and you can feel connected to the sky because it's always around us, protecting us from, you know, the radiation belts, protecting us from solar flares. That ozone layer, that sky, is our it's our protector. And it's always there taking care of us. And it's so marvelous to to be shielded by the sky. And it's so fabulous to feel the 
the birds. Wherever people are, there's always birds. In in Tokyo, in Chicago, birds are everywhere. Maybe not so many kangaroos everywhere, but birds everywhere that we can we can feel the the beauty of of their wings outstretched, catching the wind and and lifting them up. You know, it's it's so marvelous to think about how how those updrafts of warm air can help an eagle to rise effortlessly just hundreds of meters into the air, way high into the sky without ever even beating their wings. They just ride these thermal updrafts and, and glide forever, it seems like, around and around and around. And, and we're connected to that. And to just take a moment and, and to feel, just to play with the idea, to feel with me that that these things, the sky, the earth, the clouds, that they might be consciously aware of us, that they might be noticing us too, that the trees, the animals, they may be aware of us, that, that we may be all feeling connected, that that the clouds can be sensing our energy, our suffering, our pain. And one doesn't get through life without a bit of suffering and pain. And I, I think it's so helpful to share it with the earth and with the rocks and with the sky and the clouds and the water. Sometimes there's nothing more healing than to than to walk beside a beautiful brook, a stream, and to and to sit down at the edge of that stream and to just watch the water flowing downstream, to watch the water just tumbling down, and to just imagine that we could we could let go of some of that pain and some of that suffering. We could just let it go into the water and just let the water just carry it away and take it down to the ocean wherever that ocean is, because wherever you are, eventually that water will get to the ocean. Some of that water, some of it evaporates and goes into the clouds, but some of it gets to the sea and can take our troubles down to the sea and take them away. And you know, we can finish this by also feeling how deeply beneficial it is to feel each other to feel each other's hearts and minds and and wherever we are there's usually other people that we can feel connected to wherever we are others are around us who care for us and care about us and 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 that we can connect to all of these other people just as we can connect to animals you know some of the most loving relationships people have are with their dogs or cats and, and I want to close with the thought that, that a fellow left me with the other day, which I think is so marvelous. He said, I'm working so hard to become the person that my dog already thinks I am. And so so we could we could just imagine, you know, to finish that that we're all in this together and that my joy is your joy. Your suffering is my suffering, and that the more we share it all around, 
the better it is for all of us. And to just feel that for a moment and then to let it go and and to to get on with whatever we have to do next in our lives and and to just walk a little lighter, breathe a little easier, lose a lose a tiny bit of those weights that we carry on our shoulders and just be a little happier. And that's all. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Louis, very, very generous of you and peace evoking. I've been speaking with Louis Mel Madrona. He is in Australia right now, joining us for Insights at the Edge. And he's the author of two new programs from Sounds True. One is on Native American healing meditations and a new six-session audio learning course on the spirit of healing. Louis, thank you so much for taking the time and for speaking so uh, heartfully, sweetly, and intelligently. Oh, thank you. And I, I've, I've got I've to at least try to say, good eye, Mike, from Down Hunter. Yeah, good job. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> I've been practicing. Thanks, everyone, for listening. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey 